0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word this day that we come together to celebrate what Jesus has done and learn about that in your word. Father, I pray that you would bring a sobriety over us today, Lord, to really grasp the truths of Genesis 6 here. God, I pray that the Spirit would be working in hearts and that this would all be for the fame and the renown of your Son, Jesus Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. On April 26, in 1986, some of the workers at Reactor 4 of the Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant conducted an experiment. They wanted to see if their backup systems were enough to keep the coolant flowing in case case the power went out and they lost power, and they wanted to see if they could keep the plant cool so that there wouldn't be a massive disaster. And the test was already starting to go bad, things were pretty unstable, but a supervisor told the team to keep the test going, and he didn't have any idea what would ensue. The test failed. And it led to a a massive power surge and and the hot reactor began to make lots of loud noises and tons of hot fuel began to mix with cold water and and there eventually was just a pressure explosion from all of the steam. A couple of other explosions ensued and and it led to the air being contaminated with debris and radiation and it it was awful. But people in the town of Chernobyl really didn't know it was that detrimental to them so they kept living life. I mean, they weren't in on the danger of what was happening. And they continued life as normal. This led to about fifty people dying pretty immediately from the effects of this. Countless more becoming sick. Countless more, um, even to this day, discovering getting cancer from this at a young age. Winds carried the nuclear winds, the nuclear um, debris, sorry, as, as far as Sweden. It was terrible. Thousands of deaths have been attributed to the accident in Chernobyl. And the town that was once a a nice, beautiful town of 15,000 people is today pretty much a ghost town where dogs play in the streets. Almost nobody lives there. It's awful. And this is just one example in history of how things can turn south very, very quickly. One small test, a couple of bad decisions, ended in total tragedy. And in many ways, this incident shares some similarities uh, with the first generations of humankind on the earth. One sin in the garden, eventually bringing us all the way to the condition of man that we see in Genesis chapter 6. And it's, it's pretty ugly, and it didn't actually take that long either. Our passage today comes at us in a few stages. The first stage, verse 1 to 8, it's actually the closing passage of the last time that we were in Genesis. It's the closing passage of chapter 5. That's a better way to look at it. So the the book of Genesis is broken up into a lot of big, um, major sections. And your cue to when a new section is beginning, a new section always begins with with the term, These are the generations of... So Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord, the, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 5-1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And the next section actually begins in verse 9 of our chapter. These are the generations of Noah. And so the opening nine verses that we're going to go through first, or the first eight, sorry, they'll make more sense to us if we consider them actually the end of the last passage that we were looking at in chapter five. So for some recap here, chapter five began to tell us about Adam, and then it walked us through the family tree of Adam, and up until Seth, and then up until the birth of Noah, ten generations later, ten generations after Adam. And Noah's birth was heralded with some pretty big expectations. Uh, Genesis 5:28 to 29 says when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And this language here that Noah should should bring relief from the painful toil of our hands, it actually points to something pretty huge here. So Think of one of the biggest parts of the curse in Genesis 3. One of the biggest parts of the curse in Genesis 3 is now that the ground is going to rebel against you, it's going to be difficult to work the ground, and in working the ground, you're going to have pain and toil, labor, sweat in your brow. And Noah is is expected to reverse all of this. Noah is expected to bring an end to this. They expected Noah to reverse the curse on creation. They probably expected Noah to be the Messiah. And that kinda makes sense so far. I mean, if you think about it so far almost anybody in history is fair game for the Messiah. I mean, the main promise they're going off right now is that someone who is the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, reversing the curse. So in their minds, a lot of people were fair game to be the Messiah. And this conception of Messiah that they had, we have to remember at this point in the story of God, it wasn't so developed as our conception of Messiah. I mean there before so many promises, so many types of Christ. So, not that they had a primitive understanding, but they had a, a, a less developed understanding as, of Messiah as we do. And so it makes sense that they would apply this title to some select people and get very excited, you know? It hasn't been long since Adam. When will this person come and reverse the curse for us? So like I said, some pretty big shoes to fill for Noah here. Next, we hear about the rest of Lamech's life and Noah's three sons, and it says Lamech lived and fathered Noah 595 years he had other sons and daughters thus the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died genesis 5:30 30 to 32 and then chapter 6 verse 1 says when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters of men were born to them So this is the story of Genesis just hauling along. This is what happened to the generations of Adam. Man multiplied on the earth, just like God told him to, and daughters were born to them. This is the creation mandate, just chugging along, and and God's plan continuing, and life was flourishing on the earth, just like God had told man to do in the creation mandate. But then, in verse 2, we're told, "...the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose." This is one of those really interesting and pretty hard to interpret passages of the book of Genesis. Um, Throughout history, there's actually been a fair number of of decent interpretations of this. A few different ways of understanding this, but one of the oldest and the most popular way of understanding this is pretty much the most clear in the text. It's the most straightforward one. So so in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, every time you see the phrase sons of God, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were pleasing to the eye, sons of God only ever means one thing everywhere else in the Old Testament, angels. Sons of God means angels, angelic beings. And so Many have understood this verse to be teaching us that, that falling angels fallen angels were marrying daughters of men, and they were intermarrying with the human race and, and breeding this new offspring. We know from other places in the old testament that angels are actually capable of of assuming physical form and doing physical things. You know, think of Genesis eighteen, where three angels came and ate with Abraham. They assumed a physical form, they ate, they did physical bodily things. And we know from the New Testament that demons are more than capable of possessing people and dwelling in human hosts. And so it's not actually that unlikely or impossible to imagine that evil spirits were either taking human form or or indwelling in people and polluting the human race through intermarriage. Think of Eve who was seduced by the serpent in Genesis 3. She was seduced to take the attractive fruit of the tree and eat from it. And now as a consequence... The dark forces are seeming to take the attractive daughters of men. It's the same wording as Genesis 3, even, and it, it's the same heart behind it, too. We see what we cannot have, and we want it, and we take it anyway. So, as unnatural or sick as this is, they, they, would, they were going to have their way. And by the way, as a, as a side note here, all sin is sick and unnatural. Not just the ancient ones that make us raise an eyebrow when we read of, of these old stories. Nevertheless... We have this situation where fallen angels, demons, they're procreating with human woman. seems like that. And the result of these marriages, it looks like, were the Nephilim. So look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the word Nephilim here comes from the Hebrew word fall, probably means fallen ones. And so in Numbers 13, the Nephilim are described as giants. You know, they go to scope out the land and they see the Nephilim and they say, we're like grasshoppers to these men. These men were amazingly capable giants, like they were pretty scary creatures, the Nephilim. And these powerful men, seems like they're the offspring of demons, fallen angels, and women. It's pretty interesting that ancient pagan nations, a lot of them had traditions that their kings were actually sons of of the gods, and maybe there's a basis for that here actually. Maybe these ancient mighty men, the Nephilim, who very obviously surely would have risen to the top and ruled over over other men, abusing their power, maybe they were the physical offspring of, of demons and women. Jude 6 to 7 points us in that direction as well. Says this The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude's saying here, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the fallen sons of God who didn't stay within their place, both likewise committed sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desire. So for sure Jude at least thought that, that was, was, that's what was going on in Genesis 6 here. It's interesting to consider this in light of Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So so could it actually be that Satan's angels had actually had offspring at this point in history and that that the offspring of Satan's and his angels and the offspring of woman were uh, offspring of men, sorry, were intermarrying and that might Give us a clue to some of the urgency here in protecting the line of the woman from being corrupted by the line of the serpent, to keep the line of the woman pure. Now, there are other ways to interpret these verses, and there's other ways they've been interpreted and understood, but the way sketched out for us here, it looks pretty convincing, it looks pretty likely considering all of the evidence, and it's admittedly pretty horrible. This should give us shivers. I mean, this is sick, this is vile. It's awful. That's the point. Look at God's response to this in verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a 120 years. Now, some people have understood this to be limiting the lifespan of man. If you look in the first few chapters of Genesis, man is living a really, really, really long time. Like, No, Abraham or sorry, um, Adam and Adam's uh, children, like they were, they were living a really long time, and so some people understand this to be God shortening the general lifespan of man to about 120 years. But most likely, this is describing a 120 year period between this pronouncement of judgment and the flood, and there was about 120 years from this pronouncement to the flood. So, the spirit of man, the spirit of God, which is the breath of man, won't abide on the earth forever. Something's coming in about 120 years that's going to take the breath of man, the spirit of God, the breath of God from man, totally off of the earth. So it's it's going to happen. And even so, with all this being said, Genesis 6 doesn't view mankind as helpless victims of these demons, of these spiritual beings, of the Nephilim, anything like that. It doesn't view man as helpless victims, being pushed around and punished by these bad, bad guys. Yes, the humans are being corrupted by demons, and as a consequence of of their failure to have dominion over the serpent, this is happening. But all of this is just one example of the real issue here, which is the sinful human heart. Look at how this section concludes. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, continually, What a statement. I mean, great wickedness. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart, all the time, only evil continually. This is a powerful statement about the source of sin. It starts in the heart. A little intention here, a little thought here, turns into all of this. It's also a powerful statement about the pervasiveness of sin. Everything comes from our hearts, and when our hearts are wicked everything around us will be corrupted, contaminated, wicked. And so, verse 6 says, And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The word regret here doesn't necessarily describe uh, the way that humans feel regret, like, oh, we passed up a great opportunity or, oh, we should have done this. We wish we made a different choice. It's not like that. It's, It's more of an emotional sense of the word regret here, of feeling sorry. And as we can see from verse six, it grieved God to his heart. It's not like God didn't see this coming, and he regrets something he didn't anticipate. It's not like God didn't have this as a part of his plan. But nevertheless, this describes God feeling sadness and grief over the creation which he had created because of what they had become. God's a person, and the Bible describes that God has an emotional life, and our sin grieves him. And at this point, the pervasiveness of sin... The human race and their corruption meant that God felt sadness and grief over what he had created and that he made people at all. So what is God's response to all of these things? Verse seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man who I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we've heard an echo of this judgment back in verse 3, and here in verse 7, it becomes explicit. All humans and animal life are all going to be destroyed, all blotted out from the face of the earth. But this section ends with one small note of hope. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 8. So Noah, whose father had had huge expectations of him. He seems to be the only one exception in this whole generation of crooked, defiled, awful people doing evil things. Noah stands out. Noah's the exception to this rule. But Noah's righteousness isn't enough to stop God's coming judgment on the earth. And that's it. That concludes the first section, so the ending of the section from chapter 5. And those are the generations of Adam. Adam. How long did it take? Ten generations. Ten generations from a perfect state of dwelling with God in purity and holiness, and with one bite of one forbidden fruit, within ten generations, God is fixed and resolved to destroy the entire earth and everything that draws breath on it. That didn't take long, did it, hey? Sin doesn't have any speed limits, does it? Sin is so pervasive, so disgusting, so corrupt, so unbounded. Within ten generations, everything is going to be destroyed. These are the generations of Adam. Next, we come to our second section, Noah and his generations, verse 9 to 13. So in verse 9, we come to the next major part, and it's introduced, remember that Q phrase, these are the generations of? In verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Like I said, we've had a lot of anticipation towards Noah built up already, I mean, and here he's introduced exactly halfway between Adam and Abraham, so that's pretty significant, adding to the anticipation of who will this Noah guy be, And verse 9 continues to, to make us even more expectant of Noah with a threefold description of Noah's character and reputation. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So in the language of the Old Testament, blameless and righteous, it didn't imply that Noah never sinned, that he was totally perfect, pure, never did anything wrong. What it does mean is that as a pattern of life... Noah's life followed the expected standard of God for men on the earth at that time. Followed God's standards. And that's why the final phrase here, Noah walked with God, it says so much. What was the source of Noah's godliness? What was the source of his righteousness in his generation? He walked through the course of his life with God. He walked in a humble relationship with his creator. And then after telling us about three sons who will be super significant later in the story... The next two verses give us a contrasting picture of the world in which Noah lived. So Noah, righteous, walked with God, but the world, look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Noah was pure white in a world which he lived in the world in which he lived, it was pure black, filled with violence, totally corrupted. The word here for corrupt is pretty important. The sense that you get from uh, the use three times in these two verses of the word corrupt is to is to destroy or ruin or spoil. And here's the really important idea here when we consider that word: God did not destroy the earth with the flood. God did not destroy the earth with the flood. Mankind destroyed the earth with their sin, with their corruption. Man was the one destroying the earth, and the flood was just God's tool to put an end to the destruction of his earth. Again, God is concerned with the purity of his earth. And so, verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is the proper and right and just response to the people's sin. God is not overreacting here. He's putting an end to something awful. Looking at verses 14 to 16 now, before God tells Noah exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to destroy the earth. No one knows that God's going to destroy the earth, but God hasn't told him how yet. So before God lets Noah in totally on his plan, God told told Noah what he's expected to do, what he needs to do. And the answer is, build a really big boat. And so in... Lots of ancient cultures, pagan cultures, pretty much all ancient cultures, actually, from every continent, they all have a flood story. They all have different variations of the flood story. And in some of those stories, the the boat, the ark, is actually like a massive cube or a pyramid, and it would have been totally impossible to make. It would have been impossible to float on water. It wouldn't have been seaworthy. These stories are ridiculous. But the Bible, in contrast gives us instructions for a longboat that that totally would have been seaworthy. And people have done the calculations here. This would have fit all of the animals Noah needed to fit and all the people and all of the food and all of the storage with maybe half of the space left. So the Bible's not a fairy tale. It's not just telling us ambiguously that, that Noah made a really big boat and it was really amazing. It tells us exactly how he made it. And those measurements check out. They actually work. Also within here, there's a lesson about faith. Remember that God didn't tell Noah yet exactly how he's gonna destroy the earth. Noah hasn't been let in yet on God's full plan. He's just told to build an ark. And Noah listens. Noah doesn't need, what, need to know what God is going to do because Noah knows God. Remember, Noah walked with God. He knew God. So for example, I have some brothers in Christ, some men who I respect greatly, and I trust them. I walk with them. I know them. And if they ran up to me urgently and said, Jordan, I need your car keys right now, I wouldn't ask questions. I'd ask questions later, and I'd just give them the car keys. I don't need to know what those men are going to do with my car. I know them. I walk with them. I trust them. They can have the keys now. So it's similar with Noah's relationship with God here. We don't need to know everything that God's doing to have amazing ark-building faith. We just need to know God. We need to know his character, and we can trust him. We'll figure out the rest later. Adding to the faith that Noah would need, one thing that's interestingly uh, missing from the instructions to build the ark here is a rudder. There's no way to steer this ship. We, we learn about every other thing Noah's going to build the ark, how he's going to build the ark, but there's zero way to, to turn or steer the ship when Noah constructs the ark. So on the open sea, on the waters, Noah's going to need to be totally dependent on God. He's going to be at the total mercy of God for where this ark ends up. Now we come to verses 17 to 21. And so after telling Noah what he must do, God explains in a little bit more detail what he's going to do. For behold, verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Like I was alluding to before, pretty much all ancient cultures from every continent, they have a flood myth, they have a flood narrative, a flood story. And like I said, a lot of these stories are pretty silly. Even the reasons for the flood get pretty tainted in these stories. I mean, one culture has turned the flood story uh, and said that God or the gods destroyed the people on the earth because they were being too loud. They were being too noisy. And, And that's ridiculous. And we know that that's ridiculous. But again, in contrast to that, the biblical account alone, it has the truth. We know that God sent the flood to destroy everything that drew breath because of wickedness and violence, and God was going to finally put it to an end. One thing we can say about these pagan myths about the flood, though, is that they can actually help us and encourage us in our faith in the biblical flood. How do I mean by that? Well, think of what would have happened after Babel. So Noah settles after the flood. I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but, but follow me. Noah settles down after the flood, And then the people come together at Babel, they're one language, they're one people, and they all know about the flood. It's common knowledge to us. eh? We all come from Noah and he's told us about the flood. It's just an accepted fact. And now all of these people get scattered throughout the whole entire earth and they all speak different languages and they all have different cultures and they all start serving different gods and go after different things. They're all going to know about the flood, and they're going to keep passing this down to their children, and that story that really did happen, that they had the true form of, is going to be tainted by their new cultures, by their new man-made religions, by their new ideas. So this is exactly what we would expect if the, the flood of the Bible really did happen, if Babel really did happen. This is exactly what we would expect, and this is what we have. We know that the Bible alone is true enough, powerful enough, convincing enough to to prove its own integrity and truth, but this is just one of those little side note things that really help us in our faith and encourage us in our faith. And so, why is God destroying the earth? Wickedness. How is God destroying everything and everybody on the earth? A flood. And it's right at this point here in our passage that God introduces the language of covenant Covenant's a really important idea in the story of the scripture, and this is the first place where the actual word for covenant shows up. So verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. So a covenant was a binding relationship between two partners, and they pledged certain responsibilities and obligations towards each other. Each of them had things that they had to hold up their end of the bargain, and covenants weren't rare in these days. Covenants were commonplace in ancient times, and they were pretty common in the Bible too. God chose to put his plans into motion through working with people, through covenants, through partnerships with human partners. And here, God reveals that him and Noah are going to have a covenant. They're going to be partners in this matter. What God's expected to do, that's pretty clear, that's assumed. He's going to keep Noah and his family alive through this flood. And Noah, um, oh sorry, and in fact, one of the real expectations of God uh, in keeping Noah and his family alive through the flood, that's causing some tension here. As the story goes forward, we're wondering, will God keep up his end of the covenant? Is God going to keep Noah and his family alive through this flood, through this world-ending phenomenon? On the other hand, we have Noah and his responsibilities on top of building the ark. He has these responsibilities, continuing in verse 18. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you, and you you shall keep them alive, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So Noah's responsibilities, bringing his family onto the ark with him, bringing two of each kind of animal onto the ark with him, bringing food and storage for this period on the ark, these were Noah's obligations. And Noah's really depending on God here and In a sense, some things are banking on Noah too. I mean, if God's not a faithful covenant partner, the whole thing falls apart. Noah dies in the flood too, and there is no more humanity at all. They're going to all die. But if Noah's not a faithful covenant partner, it goes the same way. If Noah doesn't get his family on the ark, if Noah doesn't preserve some humanity on the ark and bring the animals on the ark enough to repopulate after, they're all going to die. So, well, God is sovereign. God's totally, absolutely sovereign. He accomplishes his plans through humans, and he partners with them. He's not afraid to give us a little bit of responsibility. God's not afraid to give humans a little bit of skin in the game, so to speak. And so we learn from this that God's sovereignty doesn't make us passive bystanders. Oh, the Lord's got it all figured out. The Lord never promised to build the ark, and if Noah doesn't, he's going to die. His whole family's going to die. Everybody's going to die. God's sovereignty doesn't make us passive bystanders. Instead, it invites us to participate with God in his sovereign plans. God's sovereignty makes us active participants in his sovereign plans. Now, at this point, we're probably not too worried about God if he's going to hold up his end of the covenant. But what about Noah? Noah? That's why verse 22 is such a great conclusion to this section here. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was a faithful covenant partner. Noah believed God. He obeyed God's words. He obeyed God's commands. And he did all that the Lord had commanded him. In the midst of this awful, dark, perverted generation, Here we have a man who by faith obeys God and does what is required of him. That's our text. There's a few points that we should stop and reflect on here. The first is God's righteous judgment. This is how far God is willing to go to keep his creation pure. And we can't be embarrassed at this. The extreme measure, some people think this is God being a little too harsh, a little too extreme, just shows us how bad sin is. Our perception is wrong. If the judgment seems extreme to us, maybe that's because we don't have a big enough picture of God, and maybe we have not, a, not an accurate picture of sin. We don't understand how disgusting and corrupting sin is. This is not an overreaction. If we think so, we're wrong. One way we might be tempted to be embarrassed about this is to turn this into a cutesy little story, which in the West we have, we have absolutely done. I mean, this, this is so trivialized for our youth. This is so cutified for our youth. You know, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky archie. Yeah, and we laugh, right? It's kind of cute, isn't it? But what really happened isn't cute. There's no verse in that song about the destruction of every living creature who draws breath on the face of the earth, is there? Why not? What are we hiding? Why are we omitting that part? We don't need to be watering this down. Instead, we need to let this message be a prophetic speaking, speak prophetically to our culture, to our society today. We're no better, our generation is no less dark. That generation deserved that judgment, and our generation deserves that and worse. We can't be embarrassed of this. People need to know that they're just as wicked. The sin that people are going to be judged for, is not just saying no to Jesus. It's not just they, they checked the wrong box on a little test. People have a consciousness. People made in the image of God know the difference between right and wrong, and with eyes wide open, they choose wrong with every single breath. Romans says they drink down iniquity as if it was water. People sin with their eyes wide open. Nobody's a victim of anything to make them sin. We deserve this judgment. Our wickedness is unjustified. And the only reason that there's not a flood every generation is because God promised there wouldn't be and he didn't have to. The first flood could have been the last judgment act of God on the earth, and he didn't have to leave no one in the ark. And we deserve worse. The next point to consider is that the message of the New Testament doesn't stand in contrast to this. It's consistent with this. It's not that God stopped judging sin. It's not that God stopped destroying wickedness. It's that God took that sin, and in the person of of, of his son, he bore it in himself on the cross. God didn't stop judging sin. God took the judgment for sin. This was God's plan all along. All of the wrath that we see in the Old Testament, the curse of Adam, the flood, every judgment of every wicked nation, every exile of Israel, every curse over God's people— All of that judgment came to bear full swing on Jesus Christ, on the one man who truly was righteous and upright in his generation. It all came upon him. None of it is left out of the New Testament. All of it was called for. All of the judgment of the Old Testament, none of it was overreacting. All of it was called for. And in the New Testament, all of it was paid for. There was more suffering on that cross endured by one man than all of the suffering from every flood victim combined. Jesus, in those hours on the cross, suffered more than all of the collective suffering from every judgment in the Old Testament combined. And this should cause us way more outcry than the flood causes us. Everybody in the flood, no one was a victim. They deserved the flood. They had the flood coming to them. Nobody who drowned in that flood was innocent, not a single one. But Jesus, spotless, unreviled, precious Jesus, pure and upright and perfect in his generation, bore way more suffering than the flood had in store for the earth, cursed and crushed by God. Do we struggle with that like we struggle with the flood? Who hears complaining about the cross? That's way more of an outcry than the flood. And thank God that it happened. But we need to change our perspective if we struggle with the flood more than we struggle with the cross. So God's made this way through the cross. Just like he made a way in Noah's day. Only this time, you don't have to be righteous to get on the ark. You get on the ark to become Righteous. I'm using an analogy. What do I mean by that? You don't have to be righteous to go to Christ. You go to Christ, and in him you're hidden from all of the wrath outside, and in him you become righteous and blameless in your generation. But we know what happened to everybody outside of the ark. They were destroyed. They were killed for their wickedness. They were judged. And even so, God has fixed a day whereby the one man, Jesus Christ, he will judge everybody nobody escapes from this judgment acts 17:31 his spirit will not abide with man forever the rain is coming and it's going to be way 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 worse than the flood the last point to consider in all of this is that the righteousness of god comes to us by faith for Noah to, to respond and obey like this meant he had to believe in God's words. This all came from faith. This wasn't teeth-gritting obedience. This came from faith. Hebrews eleven seven By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah is just one of us. One of us living in this perverse generation, enduring by faith in his creator, walking alongside his God. All of those decades of ark building, Noah didn't build the ark overnight. This took a long time. He was likely reviled the whole time. This couldn't have been easy, but by faith he did this. And people of God... Are you not more equipped than Noah to walk by faith? Are you not more equipped than Noah to walk by faith? Think of this. Noah put into practice his faith. Noah obeyed God. Noah looked like a fool to the world building a massive boat without even knowing God's plans yet. He knew God was going to destroy the world, but when he was asked to make the ark, he didn't even know God was going to flood the world yet. He wasn't let in on the whole plan of God, and he obeyed. Church, don't we have all of the promises of God? Aren't we through the word of God let in on all of the promises of God? Aren't all of the promises of God yes and amen for us in Jesus Christ? We have the New Testament. We have the book of Revelation. God has let us in on his plan. We know where this goes. We know that if we conquer, if we overcome, if we endure by faith like God asks us to, that we will become sons of God in his kingdom and he will be our God and we will be his people. Life eternal. We have the whole picture. Noah didn't, and he obeyed, so why can't we? We can, filled with the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant era, we must endure by faith. This generation, it's not any brighter than Noah's. In a lot of ways, our generation is more twisted, more corrupted by lies, darker than Noah's generation. But for the people of God, the promises, the will, the revelation of God now is so, so much brighter. And it's on these promises that we stand by faith. It's on this revelation of the will of God that we stand by faith. So church, in this twisted and corrupt generation, you have been called to stand upright and to walk with your God. Let us be children of the promise. You walk with your God, don't you? People we know are God, don't we? So let us obey him by faith. Let's pray. Father, the fullness of Christ and all that you are for us in Christ through your promises, should be more than enough for us to obey you. So God, we repent as a people for all of the times where we said, no, that's not enough, and we disobeyed. But God, even now, let us turn and by faith, stand on your word, stand on your promises, knowing you, walking with you, be like Noah, who obeyed in a twisted generation. Father, let us not be taken out of the world, but God, let us be a light to the world. And this we will do by the power of your Spirit, to the glory of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.